Welcome to Green City, a podcast focused on sustainability. I'm your host, Lene Marty Henson. Each week on the show, I have a conversation with guests who are making a difference within their realm of influence in innovative ways. They share their insights based on their experiences, and it is my hope that we can all come away with something that resonates within our own lives and inspires us to action within our own communities. The ultimate goal is that we each start where we are and find ways to work together to create more connected, more vibrant, and indeed more sustainable communities. Join us each week as we learn from each other. Good morning and welcome to our continuing series focused on the seven capitals. Natural, social, financial, political, human, cultural, and built. Bob Riley is my co-host for this series and is actually the one who approached me with this idea four months ago, and I loved it. So here we are. Um, Our goal for this series is to dream of an aspirational post-COVID world where we emerge as better versions of ourselves, both as individuals and as communities. Embracing an outlook of positivity and a belief in the possibility of environmental, social, and economic sustainability for all via civil dialogue and community engagement, we've invited guests who can share experiences and insights for each of the capitals. During the past few weeks, we've had great discussions on natural, social, financial, and political, and today, our sixth show in the series we focus on human capital. Our distinguished guests this morning are Dr. Marvin DeGier, Senior Vice President of Talent Development for the Greater Des Moines Partnership, and Dr. John Wool, Senior Vice President and Academic Dean at Simpson College. As we've been doing, we're going to let Bob set up our discussion by explaining what human capital is and the role it plays within our communities. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you, Lene, for being our uh, DJ on this uh, and guide on this journey. And uh, thank you, Marvin and John, for joining us. Uh, the the seven capital concept uh, started when I uh, read a book uh, by Neil Flora, Cornelia Flora up at Iowa State University, and it was uh, it had to do with uh, the need for all seven of these capitals uh, to have a sustainable society. And you can't have just one, you need to have all seven bubbling up at the same time in order to uh, have a system that works and they're all interdependent and and uh, from a Venn diagram standpoint they all have some uh, overlap and it's essential that uh, you think of it as a system because when you press in on one side something comes out at the on the other side uh, or somewhere else in the system because of this uh, interdependence uh, that we have between these capitals. And so today we're going to be talking about human capital. Um, and human capital really has some interesting uh, components to it because it it obviously touches on all the rest of them. But the, uh, the 
the human capital is really the characteristics and potentials of individuals that are determined by the intersection of nature and nurture or genetics and the social interactions in your environment. And they have, they have to do with education, they have to do with skills, health, experiences, self-esteem, time. Um, we all want an increased use of the knowledge, skills, and abilities of various people uh, so that we can turn these assets that we have these human assets that we have, or human capitals that we have, into into assets, and so uh, it's essential that uh, you know what are they talking about hiding your light under a bushel? We don't want uh, our society to be full of people with skills that are underutilized or hidden from use, because if that's the case, those are those that's wasted capital that needs to be utilized somewhere else. And so um, the key, I think, that we need to talk about today, uh, because we have two people that are involved in the whole human capital experience, is that um, you can see that capital is a flow of talent through society, and then the conversion of this capital into an asset, that harnessing of human endeavors into useful activity is what produces outcomes. And that's what we're really trying to get to today. So um, Marvin, can you give me a little bit of your experience having to do with the conversion of human capital into usable talents that then can be turned into assets that help fuel a society? Uh, thanks, Bob, and, and thanks, Lene, for having us this morning. Um, well, Bob, to answer your question, um, I've had experiences uh, in my previous role and, and even now my new role um, really just understanding you have to meet people where they're at, first and foremost. Um, everybody is along different spectrums of where they're at within their own personal work readiness, uh, technical skills that they may bring to the table. And you have to really just build trust with them as well, because a lot of times people that haven't maybe been as actively engaged in the workforce um, or just kind of stuck in between careers, sometimes it's really need to sit down and just have somebody really walk them through what career options are available, understanding what, what, what best suits the needs that they're actually interested in and want to engage in for the long term, and, and, and then also building that trust. Um, a lot of people have uh, sometimes been feel like they've been heard or forgotten about and sometimes just settle in a career because this is this is all they think they can do. So just really just meeting people where they're at and really trying to create a plan that's tailored for them and their own personal success to find that livable wage career they're looking for. Uh, John, can you comment on the concept uh, that part of our educational system, and especially in the liberal arts side, is finding the right fit for somebody's talents and uh, getting them steered in the right direction so that they can uh, end up in a very fulfilling job or career that they they really like. Um, you know, a lot of times we use Myers-Briggs and sort of different types of uh, instruments to determine uh, and to try to match proclivities with careers. Can you tell me a little bit about 
the role of colleges and universities in discovering and then helping people to find where they want to go. Uh, thank you, Bob, and thank you, Lene. Actually, one of the things that Marvin just said uh, really hits on this concept, the idea that you have to build trust. Um, our job as a small private local arts institution is to uh, take the faith that families and their children have in us, uh, build that trust over time so that <clears throat> students uh, begin to see the value uh, that new knowledge has for thinking about the way that they position themselves in their own lives as they develop their own systems of values, uh, think more broadly about ethics, about diversity, about equity, about inclusion, as they begin this journey towards adulthood, uh, which begins well before uh, they come to Simpson College and certainly doesn't end uh, when they exit our gates. But our goal is to serve as that nurturing community uh, where we can be trusted as administration or as faculty, as staff, uh, with helping guide students along that path. Uh, our job is not to tell them what to do. Our job is to help them discover for themselves what they want to do. Um, in fact, it often takes several unsuccessful attempts at trying to figure out what they want to do uh, for us to uh, help them find uh, the place where their own personal values and self-understanding align with you know, what the world needs. Uh, and then they can think about the ways in which those two things fit together, right? Uh, there are certainly demands that are going to be placed on them by an external world that might prevent them from pursuing whatever that specific passion project is uh, as a career, certainly when they graduate at 23 years old. Um, but part of our role is to help find the places where those two things fit together, what the world needs and what I have to offer. Um, and helping them think through that process or at least begin thinking through that process uh, to the point at which they're able to uh, be productive and engaged members of a larger civic community is really what we're all about. That's very well said. Um, I think uh, the demands of the external world and the uh, the drive of the internal self and how to marry those two together is a, uh, that's a job that is monumental. And um, I think I've always said uh, that there's always a place for someone in this world and finding that place is a real trick. And um, both you, John and Marvin, uh, have had careers that are spent basically looking for those slots to make sure that we have uh, uh, the right fit doing, uh, you know, with every, every person. Um, another question that I guess comes up uh, has to do with kind of the, and, and Marvin, I want you to address this a little bit from your last job and then also from your present job uh, in terms of talent development, there are, and someone mentioned uh, some of the barriers that are out there. We have 
cultural and systemic barriers, uh, you know, plenty of them. Uh, they, they probably have to do with education. They have to do with uh, who your family was, uh, whether or not they valued various things. You have different cultural um, things going on, uh, both within society, having to do with race, having to do with high school education, um, and other stair steps that are necessary for uh, to participate in society. Can you talk a little bit about those barriers and and how you overcome them in the in the larger view? Thanks, Bob. And so you talk about barriers, and and you you kind of gave some different examples of where those could you know could stem from as far as education levels, cultural. Uh, transportation, childcare. There's there's a wide range. Um, I just I guess I first want to start off and let people understand that um, these barriers people face them whether you live in rural parts of, of of the country versus even urban parts of the country. And I think when you start to really look at these barriers, um, everybody's facing the same challenges in some capacity. Um, they may look a little different depending on the region, but when you start to really get down to the core of it. Um, transportation, childcare, broadband, these things are challenges that regardless of where you are uh, living at, you're still facing this same barrier. Um, so those are some of the things we have to address, I think, as a collective and a community to really make sure that um, everybody's getting an equal opportunity and being able to access um, all the opportunities that are available and being able to, to make those connections and, and try to reduce those barriers. So, um, it's, it's, it takes a collective, you know, you have to have different organizations, you have to have public-private relationships. Um, the employers have to really understand the value of their employees and, and really um, decide to invest in them outside of uh, just the workplace, but really their everyday lives. How do we make sure that their quality of life is also one that's enjoyable um, and encourages them to come back to work every day? Um, and along the way, too, I think... Um, Outside of just the employers, you have plenty of other um, institutions around. You have United Ways, uh, community foundations to partnership. You have other entities that have to come alongside from that nonprofit space, and even the community-based organizations that um, where these the, the entities that are serving the clients and customers that you're looking for these to build this workforce live and reside. And you have to have their voice at the table as well to make sure that you're you're not assuming anything. Um, and you're making sure that you're checking the boxes and really hearing the voice of the people that you say you want to be your employees. Hmm. So when we think of barriers, uh, there are systemic and you know uh, cultural and, uh, and governmental barriers, uh, societal barriers uh, that um, kind of stand in the way that people have to somehow or another get over. Um, and I'm thinking of the cultural barriers a little bit that um, come to uh, Simpson, John, when when you have, uh, what is it, 40 or 50% of the people that are coming to um, uh, Simpson are first-time um, first college attendees in their family, I believe. Is that number close? And those are, I guess I'm going to call it sort of cultural barriers, but they have to do with uh, the stories that are that we found in our households. I talked a little bit about nature and nurture. Uh, if we don't value education in our household, then there's a pretty good chance the 
uh, next generation won't value education. If we don't value the manners and kindness in our household, I would imagine that other people in the next generations are not going to hold those in high esteem. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the barriers that you find with people coming into um, Simpson and how they get to overcome those? Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. That's a great question. One of the things that traditional private residential liberal arts colleges have struggled with uh, has been to think about how to make the argument uh, for a residential liberal arts college experience to particularly first-generation students uh, whose parents might not have had a college experience, whose parents might not have had uh, certainly a, a small private liberal arts college experience. And uh, as we as we work with this student population, uh, the needs are, are, are very different. They require different levels of support. You think about the language, for example, uh, that surrounds a college. Um, so when you go to register for classes, you don't go to the office where you register for classes. You go to the registrar's office. Um, and who knows what that is unless you have somebody in your family or someone else uh, you're comfortable to ask. Um, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to have been at a place that had a bursar uh, where we had to go. <laughs> uh, fortunately, you know, I, I had parents who, who knew their way around and could help with that. And so one of our important tasks, and this goes back to, to the trust that we were talking about before that's required to build, uh, one of our important tasks is to help students adapt to that different language and begin to see the world of the college um, and the larger world as being different from the world in which they grew up. Um, and that in itself, right, is part of the educational task. It takes place outside of the classroom. It takes place uh, for us as an institution in the way that we think about ourselves as an institution and also the way in which we think about student engagement on that campus as we think about asking them to trust us. Uh, well, they can't trust us if we don't speak their language. And so we need to think very carefully about the ways in which we help students develop uh, that vocabulary and that capital that will flow with them once they leave the institution and go out into the wider world. Uh, and it's a real test for us in all honesty. Um, it is, you know, the institutions uh, of higher learning in this in this country and and in most uh, have their roots in in uh, in medieval Europe, right? We still wear medieval uh, regalia uh, to our big ceremonies, um, and so how do we adapt uh, those medieval rites and traditions to the students of today? Uh, and for a vital institution like Simpson College. We have to do this about every 20 years as new generations turn over. Uh, we were finally getting the handle on how to communicate with millennials and we move to a different generation that has an entirely different set of priorities uh, with Generation Z. And so now we're starting back over again and we have to think through these same issues again about how we communicate, about how we help this new group along uh, as we move forward. And I, the, the ever-shifting earth. Yeah. Beneath your feet. Yeah. L and A. 
I'm going to jump in with a question that I'm curious about, and, and I love the insights you've been sharing so far, but as you're developing in your realms skills and knowledge and that that helping individuals focus on who they are and their place in the world, how do you how have you found success in nudging them one step further so that they're not only contributing in their employment arena, but also going beyond to that sense of giving back to the greater community? Great question. Um, so Bob's where this, you know, one of the first things we created um, in my previous role at the Evan K. Davis Center was our youth uh, training program. And it's a 10-week program we developed um, where youth get the experience of go, learn work readiness skills, get to work in a particular place of a, uh, employment for eight weeks, earn their wages for 20 hours a week. But also we would take them on college visits and, of course, um, get them to learn more about civic engagement and actually have them participate in um, volunteering opportunities, whether it was um, oh, the meal, the with packaging the food, I can't remember these. Not, not coming up meals from the Heartland, or meals from the Heartland. Thank yeah. you. So yeah. we had our students participate in that, or they would go and and do cleanups for different areas of town, um, like Sixth Avenue, different opportunities around that. So that's just one instance where um, we try to make sure that we, whenever we have our training opportunities, we try to instill that civic engagement along the way. Um, and even recently, when we have different, we would have larger events. We would. Um, recruit volunteers back in from our existing programs, customers and things like that if they'd like to volunteer and be able to participate in some of those other activities. So we also, we, we try to create opportunities for civic engagement because we know it's just as important as even getting them trained in their technical skills as well. Yeah, very good. John, did you have? Yeah, I'd say that in in our case, and this goes back to the first question about you know thinking about what the world needs, one of the things that a liberal arts education really cultivates is a capacity for deep listening, uh, for hearing what's going on in the community. Um, you know, reading nineteenth-century texts is great. I love them. Uh, it, <laughs> it was part of my field, um, but. But what's important there is to be able to read those texts and actually understand what those people were saying in that particular time about their particular situation, hmm. which in turn cultivates that skill when you meet people now. You can't just assume that they come from the same place that you do simply because they share you know, that particular spatiotemporal location on that day, uh, you have to listen deeply and you have to understand what the social location is of what they happen to be saying. And in cultivating those deep listening skills, we can help prepare students to think deeply about those particular societal problems and whether they engage with their communities through volunteerism or through serving on community boards or uh, maybe simply by being season ticket holders for the symphony orchestra and getting engaged in that way. Uh, we know that products of liberal arts educations tend to be more highly civically engaged 25 years after graduation uh, than, than students from, from large research one institutions. And 
that's what we're really trying to cultivate is that deep listening skill, that ability to hear what's going on in the community and engage with that and then be able to engage it in a way that is productive and continues to move that community forward. And so as important as we think our, our texts and our histories and the things that we teach are, uh, it's really cultivating that deep curiosity about other people, about their locations and about their texts, and then to think through uh, what it means to really hear what they have to say and bring your skills to bear on the situation. Right. And Bob, mm-hmm. given our time, I'm going to let you kind of summarize and wrap up, if you will. Well, you always do this to me. <laughs> we're, we're a third of the way there, and it's already over. <laughs> I know. Uh, there's a lot of things that are coming through here having to do with trust, having to do with what John just mentioned, curiosity and deep listening. Uh, you didn't all grow up in the same house, so you all got different experiences, and we have to figure out how to bring those experiences out to the front so that we can really see where people came from or are coming from. Um, we talk a lot about meritocracy uh, in our society, and I'm not 100% sure that's as, um, that's as prevalent today as we need it to be. Um, but, you know, when you have one person, one vote, uh, that basically boils a lot of stuff down into a, uh, a pretty low common denominator uh, uh, system where your opinion is just as good as my opinion, whether you've got your PhD or I have just read this on the internet somewhere and it, it must be true. Uh, so, you, you know, different opinions have different weights depending on how much of your human capital you have developed and with that human capital developing, you end up with the ability to influence and lead in a society where uh, the common good and the self-interest are always in play. But we need to always think in terms of that polarity and how to manage it as opposed to it being a, a binary choice of common interest or, uh, or uh, single interest. So... Um, John and Marvin, why don't you uh, give us uh, 30 seconds of, or 60 seconds of your, uh, your wisdom to wrap this thing up, and we'll let Lene get on. Go ahead, Marvin, you want to start? Go for, go for right. 15 seconds if you can. <laughs> okay. I would just say that in the midst of, of knowing that we're, we're going to have a, a population decrease coming, um, there's still an ever-looming middle skills gap, uh, even now in the midst of uh, this pandemic, that we need to rethink and really make sure as we move forward that if it's something that doesn't guarantee 100% of every, every single person in this area and region, um, not having the ability to um, access and, and truly have the opportunity to go out and chase all their dreams, then we need to start over right right now immediately and mm-hmm. rethink it. Because it, now more than ever, we have to really all work together to make sure that we pull through this as a region in order to maintain all these wonderful rankings that we have. We have to make sure that every single person, man, woman, and child, has an opportunity to be all they want to be. Very good. Yeah. John? 
Yeah, I think Marvin's comments are exactly on the mark. Uh, we need to think very broadly about how we have an impact, uh, about who's included in the vision going forward, uh, and think very clearly about what success means. Success means all of us succeeding together okay. in the greater Des Moines area, in the state of Iowa, and across the country. And our perspective as we educate new students every year uh, is to constantly think about those bigger and bigger circles of influence and how we can think about the larger picture and helping everyone succeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Bob and Marvin and John, for the great discussion today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in and engaging in your own way, in your own communities, in this ongoing effort to refine ourselves and be the best version of ourselves. Um, we hope you tune in next week. We're going to discuss cultural capital. So until then, stay safe. Thanks for listening and know that we're truly grateful. That's all for this edition of Green City. I'm your host, Lene Marty Henson, and I hope you continue to listen in on these conversations focused on the broad realm of sustainability. These are challenging times, but I truly believe that we go further faster when we come together to have real dialogue, inspiring us toward practical solutions. Let's continue to learn from each other how best to nurture this precious planet we call home. Thanks for listening. We are truly grateful.